if the dispatcher determines that there's no risk to safety, well then we're going to have that person transferred to the crisis line. I think something that's hard for those of us on the outside is it seems like, oh, it's so simple. There's some mental health calls and then there's a call, you know, there's an intruder. But it sounds like it's not always clear. So yes, and, and let me separate it. So it's two separate things going on. We're having what is called a call diversion program. So if a person is in a crisis or a relative calls because they have a family member that's in a crisis, our staff are able to show up with the police officer and provide some de-escalation. St. Louis is preparing to launch a new program that diverts some workload from police and puts it on social workers. The idea is that they can de-escalate where officers cannot. But while that diversion sounds like common sense, it's become loaded politically. Sometimes it's called defunding the police. We tried to sort out what it will look like in reality on today's St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. On October 26, the Philadelphia woman called the police seeking help. Her 27-year-old brother, Walter Wallace Jr., suffered from mental health issues, including bipolar disorder. He'd hit his mother. His sister called 911, hoping to get a medical intervention. Instead, police arrived, and within 53 seconds, they shot Walter Wallace Jr. His death sparked days of protest in Philadelphia. The National Guard was deployed to stop looting and violence. Now, Wallace's death has led to a reckoning in Philadelphia. District Attorney Larry Krasner had this to say yesterday. In some ways, maybe it's curious that we're having this conference in the middle of an election count because, as I understand it, we have more votes than at any point in the history of this country over the last 100 years at least. People give a vote, tens of millions Maybe hundreds of millions of people give their vote and they give it for nothing, for something. And what they give it for is a government that will provide protection, protection from pandemics, sometimes protection from foreign invasion. But they also give it for a government that will protect them when their child, who has mental illness and cannot be blamed for that, needs intervention from government of some source. Well, I am part of government, and I don't think there's any dispute that in this particular situation, when a mother was trying to get help with a situation involving her son, who is blameless for having mental illness, that when she did that, government failed because her son was killed within a minute of government's arrival. As a part of government, I apologize for that. And that is Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner. Now, Philadelphia is now contemplating a host of reforms. One is already underway. It's a pilot program embedding a behavioral health navigator inside the unit that answers 911 calls. And Philadelphia's acting commissioner of the Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services, Jill Bowen, she explained yesterday how it works. The goal is to help 911 call takers better identify behavioral health related calls. 
By January 2021, the innovative program is expected to move to a second pilot phase that will include intentional dispatch of crisis co-response teams. CIT officers will partner with civilian mental health experts to jointly respond to calls identified by police radio. And that's Jill Bowen in Philadelphia. Now, St. Louis is actually ahead of Philadelphia on this. After a very small pilot program this month, the city begins the launch of an initiative that's often called Cops and Clinicians. This is a partnership between its public safety workers and trained social workers. And joining us today to talk about it is Wilford Pinckney. He's the director of the city's Office of Children, Youth, and Families. So, Will, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined today by Tiffany Lacey-Clark. She is the Chief Operating Officer of Behavioral Health Response. That is the city's contractor on this new program. So, Tiffany, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Good afternoon. So, Will, I want to start with the city's perspective on this. I understand the city did a very limited pilot of this program in the last year, and you really stressed me just how limited. But uh, what were you looking into in that pilot? We were looking at learning what would work best for the city of St. Louis. You know, oftentimes when you bring programs into cities, you want to make sure you don't try and do it in a way that's cookie cutter because every city has unique uh, dynamics to them. So it was really important for us to get an understanding of what would work here. So based on what you saw in that pilot program, give us the overview. What are you moving forward with implementing here in St. Louis? Well, we're moving forward with implementing what is called a co-responder model. Uh, and that co-responder model will be presenting an alternate on-site response to, um, to an emergency response, a typical 911 call response. Mm-hmm. What we want to have is the ability to have clinicians and officers responding to scenes where and a behavioral health professional would be more appropriate. You know, we listen to... D.A. Krasner in Philadelphia, and as he said, you know, there are times when there are people other than the police that are best suited to respond to certain situations. Mm -hmm. So this co-responder model, the idea is not that you're sending a a clinician there by themselves. They're going along with an officer. Correct. And how do you decide which calls uh, get this team approach as opposed to just the usual? Well, we worked hard in that pilot, and we continue to work hard with the team, a very cross-collaborative team that's looking at data to see which calls typically um, result in people um, who need behavioral health responses being present at a scene, right? And so we're really paying attention to calls that are more about calls for help, uh, general disturbance calls, or calls that may have been the result of some type of violence, but once the, once the police uh, make sure the scene is safe, we you know it's clear that the person needs a behavioral health response and not an emergency response. I think something that's hard for those of us on the outside is it seems like, oh, it's so simple. There's some mental health calls, and then there's a call, you know, there's an intruder. But it sounds like it's not always clear in, in these 911 settings. Part of the problem is figuring out which situations are likely to need this kind of intervention. And so there's there's people there with the, the 911 workers as they're making that distinction? So, yes, and, and let me separate it. So it's two separate things going on, and, and Tiffany can expand on this when she talks, but we're having what is called a um, call diversion pro- program where when people are calling 911, as you said, if I call 911 and I'm not feeling myself um, and maybe I want to hurt myself, mm-hmm. uh, if the dispatcher determines that there's no risk to safety, 
well, then we're going to have that person transferred to the crisis line and be engaged by a behavioral health professional who's more suited to handle those types of calls than a police officer, as D.A. Krasner pointed out. Okay, so if they're calling that crisis line, then they end up on the phone with somebody who can kind of walk them through some of this, um, and that's in addition to this model that sends out the team approach to the scene. Correct. Now, the, that call diversion through 911 could ultimately end up in someone being sent for a face-to-face response, mm-hmm. but the initial purpose of this is really to have the person engaged in a way that hopefully a emergency response could ultimately end up in triggers. So the story that the DA talked about was the police responded because they weren't suited to handle the situation mm-hmm. and the person, then unintentionally most likely, there were actions that they engaged in that triggered the person's uh, um, crisis episode and unfortunately resulted in you know, a fatality. Mm-hmm. So Tiffany, uh, Will has given us sort of a great overview of how this is going to work. Um, tell us then how the, the people that work for your company fit into this. Yeah, so I think Will gave a great overview. Um, it's a collaboration, and so we were intentional about, intentional about naming it a co-response model because it's about the officer and the clinician showing up, not as separate people with separate goals, but showing up in a partnership that we are all aligned and trying to move people out of the criminal justice system when it's not necessary and move them into the treatment system where they uh, should be aligned and should be able to get treatment and provided um, services in that manner. So I think that for our staff, we look at this as our opportunity to provide um, behavioral health first response. And so if a person is in a crisis or a relative calls because they have a family member that's in a crisis, our staff are able to show up with the police officer and provide some de-escalation um, and be able to do some of the things that will uh, minimize the crisis and help a person feel safe and comfortable so they can then be trans- transferred or transported to a behavioral health center. So this, this project provides an, an additional access point for behavioral health services that the city did did not have prior to this pilot uh, project in this initiative. And so I think it's a, a really great opportunity for us to move people out of the criminal justice system and free up law, law enforcement officers to be able to provide the other services in the city that they are trained to do and allow behavioral health to do the training and the treatment that we are supposed to be doing. So these workers um, that are coming from your team, what kind of training do they have? I mean, I'm sure they're going to be ending up in some pretty sticky situations here. Yeah, so this is, um, <laughs> you know, we deal in crises, so this is not a new concept for us. So we have lots of training around de-escalation, uh, crisis intervention, uh, suicide and lethality training to make sure that we can keep people safe when they're having any kind of a suicide ideation um, and any kind of a behavioral health crisis. So the clinicians that will respond will be trained. This is an evidence-based practice. So we're, we're looking at the pilots and the other projects from around the country that have already been implemented and we're finding that in St. Louis so that we can deliver a service um, based on evidence and inclusive of the community and the culture of St. Louis so that we respond in the way that's most appropriate. So, Will, you mentioned that there are some programs um, that are underway in other cities and that they're finding that this works, that they're not exactly the same as us, that our program is unique to St. Louis, but other cities are having some success with getting these clinicians involved. Can you give us an example of a city where this is working? Sure. So Harris County, Texas is a place that we really look to um, as, a, as a, a model that we felt we wanted to at least learn from. And that's where uh, Houston have, is. That's where Houston, Texas. Yeah, Houston, the city of Houston is located. And they have what's called a crisis call diversion model. Theirs is different in that the 
clinicians are embedded in the 911 call center, so they sit in the same place as the people who dispatch out calls. You know, so there's two pieces to it. They're the call takers, and then they're the people who dispatch the police, fire, EMS to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we call an internal model. Uh, and so we looked at Houston, spoke with people there, and learned a lot from how they um, do their work. They've been very successful. They've uh, diverted at least 50% of the calls. Wow, uh, that 50%? They have, yes, 50% of the behavioral health calls that, that have come through 911. And so that's really freed up police resources, as Tiffany said. Um, so yes, I mean, they've been successful. Um, we also looked at Tucson, Arizona. Um, they have what is more of an external model. Uh, it's not exactly the same as ours, um, but they, um, theirs is just starting, so I wouldn't say there's a whole lot of outcomes that we can learn from them, but we did learn in terms of the processes and the things that, the lessons they've learned in the early stages. So this 50% diversion in Harris County, which is a huge, huge jurisdiction, there are so many people that live in that county in Texas. Um, what kind of goals do you have for St. Louis in terms of the, the percent of calls you're hoping you'll be able to divert and handle through this system? Well, we would believe, and I'll be clear, and let me make sure I'm clear, it's 50% of behavioral health calls, right? Sure, so it's not, not 50% all calls. Of all the calls, yeah. yeah. But we believe we will, we will achieve the same goal here in terms hmm. of diverting at least 50% of the calls that you know, have resulted in people with behavioral health um, needs. We're talking to Will Pinckney, the director of the city's Office of Children, Youth, and Families. We're also joined by Tiffany Lacey-Clark, the chief operating officer of Behavioral Health Response. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking today to Will Pinckney. He's the director of the city's Office of Children, Youth, and Families. And we're also talking to Tiffany Lacey-Clark. She's the chief operating officer of Behavioral Health Response, which is partnering with the city in an exciting new program. It puts social workers with police officers. Now, Will, we've been talking about this program, but I also want to talk a little bit about you. I understand you were a police officer for 20 years. That was in New York City. What, what brought you to St. Louis? I came to St. Louis because of the mayor's vision around decreasing the jail population. Hmm. So she engaged with an organization called Fuse Corps to help identify um, people to deal with issues that she felt the city needed help on. And one of those was bail reform. And so that's how I initially got here. And so I thank the mayor for recognizing um, my talent and what contribution I could make and bringing me here and, and realizing that you know, I could help with the shared vision we both have, which is really trying to help people and connect them to services and deal with root causes. It's interesting how this bail reform effort, it did kind of lead directly to this program, even though it's also indirect in a way. Um, It was money that was freed up from cutting the budget of the city's workhouse that is paying for this. That's $860,000 a year. And that money was freed up because there are fewer people in that jail now. Do you see that through line between the work you're doing there and, and what you're doing now? Yes, yes. And I think that's the other piece of that is that 
uh, you know, Tiffany can speak to this because we've been working for at least a year. Um, we started this work before the current crisis, mm. uh, before all of the current conversation around criminal justice reform. We started this with a bringing together a collaborative group of people last year, hmm. and we built out many of the protocols and strategies, and we conceptualized it all in those meetings so that we were ready to go forward when that opportunity came uh, recently, as you said, about um, redistributing money. It's interesting, this idea of defunding the police, it's become one of these really loaded terms. Mm. And yet, in some ways, this is what advocates for that are talking about. They're talking about moving money from traditional law enforcement budgets and finding novel ways to solve problems. Um, Tiffany, is this a conversation that, that clinicians and people in your line of work are eager to be a part of? Yeah, I think this is something that's very exciting for us because it's not so much about defunding the police, but it's it's more for us about funding behavioral health in a way that's appropriate for the people in the community. And so uh, to Will's point, this has been a culmination of many years of work with the city. Um, National Leagues of City uh, had a project to do exactly this, move the resources from the criminal justice and correction system and to put them into different systems of support. And so the city of St. Louis has been at the table having these conversations since at least 2016, trying to figure out ways to make uh, the resources align with where the need is in the community. And it's not about um, taking away from the police departments, it's about collaborating with them so that they are no longer put in the position to be behavioral health clinicians when that's not what the role that they chose to, to do. And so we're, we're moving the resources back into the appropriate systems and doing that in a collaborative spirit so that the city is going to get a service that is much higher and much greater, I think, than what we've had and we've experienced. And it's been a lot of years of us bringing all the partners to the table to be able to make this come into fruition. So I'm very, very excited about this. My clinicians are very excited about this. And the police officers that I know are very excited about this. So this makes it a really uh, great project and it's something I'm really proud to be a part of. Yeah, the police officer side of this is something that I'm intrigued by. I saw a quote, um, I believe, from a former officer. He said, every crisis in society gets dumped on the officer. Will, you were there responding to these calls, I'm sure early on in your career, did you feel equipped to respond to all the things you were sent out to deal with? No, no, not at all. I mean, you do a lot of training around tactics and law. Uh, and, and the other side of that is you're 20, I was 22 years old, right? Mm -hmm. Most cops when they joined the force are young. And so you don't even have the life experience necessarily to deal with these situations as well as any uh, specialized training. So you definitely would want, and, and cops even now, I mean, the police have been great partners uh, throughout all of this, even though a lot of this work and the responses, as Tiffany said, is not about them specifically, but it is because police, you know, are the ones who oftentimes, they're on the front lines and they're the ones who run into people in crisis, whether it's through a 911 call or through just showing up on the scene uh, for something that seems really innocuous but ultimately escalates and results in triggers to someone who has some type of behavioral health need. And so the police have been great partners and they welcome this. So they have welcomed it. I, I wonder, I feel like police is kind of a job like journalists. Sometimes it attracts people who they just want to get things done and they want to do things their way. And I, I sort of respect that mentality. But I wonder if there's some officers who are like, wait a minute, I have to take so-and-so on my call with me. Have, have you gotten that feedback from anybody? No, because this is more, right now, is more of a secondary response. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the clinicians aren't riding around with what I would say are dispatch cars that are 
on the radio, right? On, on, they're, on, they're in the queue, let's say, right? And so when a dispatcher looks to see who they need to send to a call, they look at a list of cars, and those cars are the ones they reach out to. These responses are more secondary responses. So they are, they're out in the community riding together these co-responder units, and they either listen to a call and say, hey, we're going to show up and see and make sure we're not needed, mm-hmm. or they can be called to the scene by officers who know they're out there and know what they're doing. And we did that in a pilot program. So we know it already works. And Tiffany, I'm a little curious about the logistics of this. Uh, When I had talked to the city spokesman about this, he estimated he thought it would be about 16 new hires for this program. Um, How do you end up being able to cover things at all hours of the day or night without having to have hundreds of people involved just to, to cover all the possibilities? Yeah, that's a great question. So we'll have probably between 16 to 18 new um, staff that comes out of this initiative. And we're hoping to hire some folks from the city and some people that have um, any experience in criminal justice or behavioral health um, as a consumer of those those industries and those systems. Uh, I think for us, being able to roll this out citywide is our goal. We're going to scale it up. So we'll start off in a couple of districts and then we'll be able to gain some information and to do some um, real life kind of training and pivoting about how to deploy and roll out the rest of the team. the, the goal for us, though, is to be able to be an assistance to the police department. And so although we're hiring those 16 to 18 people, our existing staff will also be available to help triage some of these calls and to provide, to provide some follow-up support. And so it's not just the 16 or 18 people. It's a whole system working to make sure that people have access to behavioral health services instead of the criminal justice um, system trying to provide those services to them. Will, is that the thinking on going with an outside contractor rather than, say, try to hire 16 dedicated city employees? The fact that you have this sort of round-the-clock staffing because they have a much bigger pool to draw on uh, where Tiffany works. Definitely, and it's also what they do and what they're trained to do outside of what we're talking about now. Mm -hmm. This fits well into, like she says, the system that they already have and the protocols they already have. So I, I know other systems, and this is why I said our, our external 911 call diversion model is unique, and it's going to be the first of its kind, fully external model in the country. Um, but it does doing it externally in terms of the call diversion does allow us to have more resources and to provide that 24-7 coverage for call diversion. Um, and in terms of the co-responder piece, yes, it is definitely better, in my opinion, to contract it out because we want the people, as we're saying, police aren't equipped to do this work. Uh, You know, the city has a lot of responsibilities. We do have a mandate to make sure we care for our citizens. And the best way for us to achieve that mandate and fulfill it, in my mind, is to make sure we're um, mobilizing and uh, amplifying the work of our partners who are best equipped to do this work. Hmm. Uh, We got a question on Twitter from Megan. She asks, uh, do your guests have any models of smaller cities that share behavioral health resources with nearby municipalities to respond with their individual police departments than needed? I think she's thinking of the fact that here in St. Louis, we have such a balkanized region. Um, You know, there might well be a need for this in Maplewood, say. Do you know if anybody's Mm -hmm. doing this across borders? Um, So in larger counties, I had a call recently with Madison uh, County, Tennessee, and they work with a more regional version of uh, BHR, which is where Tiffany works. Uh, And they do some of this work across counties. Hmm. Uh, We had a call recently with Newcastle, Delaware, which is another place that is a county based uh, system. And so they work with 
you know, local police departments and that exist in the counties. So yes, there, there are definitely other models of this. Okay. We also, something interesting, um, on our St. Louis on the Air Facebook group, which is a, a private group, but very easy to join. All you have to do is answer a few quick questions, prove you're not a troll, and then you can get in on the conversations <laughs> that we have about upcoming segments. And, and Danielle wrote um, in that Facebook group, she wrote, uh, Magdala Foundation had a program just like this in the early 80s. They ran the first crisis intervention program in St. Louis. United Way funded it for the first three years, and the police department was then meant to take over funding. Despite it being an incredibly successful program, evidenced by a glowing St. Louis police evaluation, the St. Louis police did not fund it uh, when United Way funding ended. And she was seconded by Maud, who writes that, yeah, in the 1980s, we did have these social workers on the police force. One of them told me it was the best job she ever had. She would not only go out on domestic calls, but would also help law enforcement officers cope with their own job-induced trauma. It's a real win-win. Now, Will, I know this is long before you showed up in St. Louis, but do you have any idea why the department moved away from this idea decades ago? I'm not sure. Uh, I would say we're in a different time now, and, and this work is viewed uh, differently now. Uh, so, But I do know I, I had spoken with someone previously who mentioned the Magdala program in the past. Um, so, yeah, I'm not quite sure, but I think it's great that it is here now. Uh, the funding is through the city's general fund right now, so we don't have to worry about an external funder and that funding uh, running out. So mm -hmm. th the issue that happened back in the 80s won't happen again because we're dedicating funding to this. Well, that's great to hear. So tell me this. I know you guys are, are beginning this program this month, and I've been kind of careful in my language there because it's not that people are beginning to answer these calls this month. That isn't happening yet, but you're putting the things in place that will allow you to do that soon. So tell me what's going on now and what the timeline is for when um, we can say this is officially launched. Tiffany, sure. do you want so, to take that? Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I can handle that question. So uh, right now what we're doing is hiring all of the staff that will be co-responders. Uh, we're hiring the clinical manager and the director of the program and all of the support staff that will be able to provide the data and outcomes um, to the city surrounding this program. And so the goal is for us at this particular time to start hiring and training and doing some collaborative training with the police departments as well and dispatch staff. And so we want to be fully functioning and uh, start our first couple of districts in January. So this first two months will be just kind of hiring, training, doing some collaboration, and then we'll start operations in January. Well, that's exciting. And, and Will, as you look ahead to that launch, I'm curious, how, how will you define success with this program? Uh, I can define success probably in a couple of ways. One, number one, is that we are connecting people to our coordinated system of care. And not only are we connecting them, but we're following up and making sure that people um, are getting into that system and getting the help they need. Mm -hmm. I would say another measure of success would, for me would be that we have more people potentially maybe in the short term calling 911, hopefully maybe we can move away from that. But people realizing that they can get help and that they can uh, get services directly from the behavioral health professionals and not the police. Mm -hmm. And then I would also say more trust in the police. We Hopefully another measure of success for me would be better communication between the police and the community um, because people see that the police now see them and look think about them as individuals and think about their needs. And where appropriate, they can connect them to care instead of either taking them to a hospital 
or potentially arresting them depending on their actions, which is what happens now. Mm-hmm. Well, those are those are such good goals and we're all rooting for this. So I wish you both the best of luck as, as you uh, get ready to get this up and going by January. Uh, Will Pinkney, director of the city's Office of Children, Youth and Families, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Have a great day. And Tiffany Lacey Clark, the Chief Operating Officer of Behavioral Health Response, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.